We'd like to read our scriptures today. Psalm 18, verses 6 through 15. Uh, We'll be talking today a lot about, or seeing scripture talk about, prayer and the effects it has. And it's not always, it's always glorious effects, but sometimes it's tumultuous effects. Psalm 18, verses 6 through 15. Listen here to God's word. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help came into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones, and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Amen. Then we'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 51. We'll read two sections here. This is really uh, about the judgment of God that falls on uh, Babylon. So, uh, Jeremiah 51, verses 24 through 29, and then 41 through 44. Again, listen here to God's Word. This is God speaking. But I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all their evil that they have done in Zion before your eyes, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys the whole earth, declares the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags, and I will make you a burnt-out mountain. They will not take from you even a stone for a corner nor a stone for foundations. But you will be desolate forever, declares the Lord. Lift up a signal in the land. Blow a trumpet among the nations. Consecrate the nations against her. Summon against her the kingdoms of Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a marshal against her. Bring up the horses like bristly locusts. Consecrate the nations against her, the kings of the Medes, their governors, and all their prefects in every land of their dominion. So the land quakes and writhes for the purposes of the Lord against Babylon stand to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitants. And flip over to 44 through 46. And I will punish Bel in Babylon. I will make what he has swallowed come out of his mouth, and the nations will no longer stream to him. Even the wall of Babylon has fallen down. Come forth from her midst, my people, and each of you will save yourselves from the fierce anger of the Lord. Now, so that your heart does not grow faint, and you are not afraid of the report that will be heard in the land, for the report will come one year, and after that, another report in another year, and violence will be in the land with ruler against ruler. Amen. And our main text today is Revelation 8, 
the entire chapter, verses 1 through 13. Again, we're in that part of Revelation where the seven seals are being opened on that little book that was held in the angel's hand that God told uh, John no one was worthy to open. Then the lamb came forth, the lion that was slain. The lamb was slain, the lion. And he's going to open the seventh seal today. This is it. Listen here to God's word. When the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, And a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, (coughs) and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way." Then I looked, and I heard an angel flying in mid-heaven, <coughs> saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the re- remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's Word, which we've read. Heavenly Father, <coughs> We come to you and ask for you to illumine us and help us this morning as we read and consider and try to understand what you've written here in the book of Revelation chapter 8. We acknowledge our ignorance, uh, but we acknowledge our confidence that you meant for this to be read and be understood and to be an encouragement and a help to us. So come, Holy Spirit, do your gracious work here in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't think anyone will dispute with me when I say that Revelation can be a difficult book. Fair enough? When you read through it, you're sort of like, it talks about the tossing of the seas and all that. You feel like that sometimes. You, you, You get turned all around. And so we need to keep our bearings We need to remember certain things I've I've emphasized. I'm going to emphasize them for the third or fourth time today. Here at the beginning, Revelation is not a series of photographs, but it's a series of representations. 
That is, these are not photographs that are meant to be a one-to-one -one correspondence. I showed you some slides to show you what, what that means. <clears throat> Time frame is important. At the very beginning of the book, the first verse, what does it say? It says, these are things which must soon take place. Revelation 1.1. That is, all this book that's here is about things which must soon take place. And we need not to forget that. The third verse says what? Heed the things which are written. Why? For the time is near. Now, you get reading through all this, and man, you can get sort of blown off your horse's saddle, and you don't keep your bearings, right? So those are bearings, and you'll, the same thing is repeated at the very end of the book, chapter 22, for the time is near, okay? <clears throat> so if you don't lose that, it'll help you. Uh, <clears throat> I've suggested to you that a good time frame, my time frame that I use when I read this, is that Revelation was written in A.D. 65 or 66. Uh, I'm not alone in that, but I'm in a distinct minority. I mean, if you've taken the, the precepts course in Revelation or other things, you read just normal commentaries, most people say it's written in 90, 95, somewhere in through there. I don't agree. Now, there's nothing wrong with they said that. They'll say there's nothing wrong with what I say about that. That's not a question of orthodoxy. But I think, again, because of what it says there, because of what the content is, that the best date is 65 to 66. And you'll see more in just a little bit of why that's a, a, such the case. <clears throat> One of the reasons is that because the temple and Jerusalem are still standing in 65 and 66. In 90, 90 or 95, they've been 30 years gone, or 20 years, 25 years gone. And a lot of the things in here talk about the temple about Jerusalem. Uh, so time frame is important. Plus, this letter is sent to seven churches. And we, we read about them, we, are, we identified them, there's letters to them. Uh, they're supposed to read it. They're supposed to heed it, and they're supposed to be blessed. Now, when they read that, and they said, things which must soon take place, did they think, well, gee, 2,000 years down the road, <laughs> this must happen, right? Or did they think, well, you know, 20 years down the road, this must happen. No, no, soon must happen. I think it means soon must happen. If I tell you that the 76ers are soon going to play a game, when do you think it's going to happen? It's going to happen tonight. <laughs> they are. I'm going to it. My wife and I are going to go down that game. Christmas present. Uh, but you don't think it's going to happen. They may play another game somewhere down the road. But soon means soon. Fair enough. Uh, now, how should we understand Revelation? Because so much of it is about judgment. I don't, you, you read it and you're aware, boy, judgment, <laughs> hard stuff. Well, I think chapter 8 is a good example, provides a good <clears throat> place for us to <clears throat> understand how to read and be blessed by and be encouraged by the book of Revelation. So, chapter 8 starts this way. The Lamb opens the seventh seal. By the way, let me stop here and put in a little parenthesis. This seventh seal is going to lead to, an, lead to seven trumpets. And at the end of the seven trumpets, the seven trumpets will lead to seven bowls. I believe this is a growing specificity of the part that's under consideration. The seven seals, I said, 
we think the Lamb, you know, this book of life here, that is God's will for the whole world. You can take those seven seals and see what God's going to be doing throughout the course of history. I think the seven trumpets apply more specifically to the time and area where the Jews are living, then the areas where they're, they're abiding. And then the bowls of wrath will apply particularly to Jerusalem and the temple. What happens there? So there's a, a narrowing of focus, a coming in, a honing in of what these guys need to know about. And all the things that happen here, those people who live in those seven churches, who are residents there, they'll hear about that. And they'll, oh, we understand. Uh, but he opens the seventh seal, and there's silence for half an hour, it says. Now, I don't think someone's there with a watch. It just means for a good bit there was silence. It's an awe-struck silence. All full, fear some. Perhaps you could see in the distance what's looming, but there's silence. God's about to do something. And it says there are going to be seven trumpets. Now we have a text in the Bible that joins together silence, trumpets, and judgment. Do you remember that whole narrative, that, that text? It's the text of Joshua and Jericho. So the first verse says that, go ahead and put the first one up, says that <clears throat> the Lord said to Joshua, see I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. So they're going to take the city. It's a judgment on Jericho. But then go on, what does it say next? He says, also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, the ark of the covenant of God. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets are tough news for Jericho, right? Yeah. But uh, he goes on to tell them this. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. So that's a judgment, right? They're going to, the defenses of the enemy are going to be down, and in they'll go. But, listen to this. Joshua commanded the people, saying, you shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth. That is silence. Silence. Until the day I tell you, shout. Then you shall shout. Well, guess what happens? Here's what it says. Then on the seventh day, they rose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, <clears throat> they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. They shouted. What happened? So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. Boom. Judgment. So there's a place. I mean, this is, this is sort of a paradigm for us of, of where you have silence, you have trumpets, and you have judgment. To help us. Now, uh, silence precedes trumpets, and the trumpets sound for judgment. What precipitates all this? 
How did this all happen here in Revelation chapter 8? Prayer. P-R-A-Y-E-R. Prayer. The prayers of the saints. We've seen this before where the saints are praying, the martyrs are praying, and their prayers, it says, are ascending to God. They're, they're on the golden altar. Uh, by the way, you notice in heaven there's never a bronze altar. You know, the bronze altar is where they offered sacrifices. Only the golden altar where they offered incense. Because the bronze altar has been done away. Christ is our sacrifice. No more need for any kind of sacrifice because Christ is our sacrifice, right? Understand that? Uh, and so, what have they been praying for? We read this back earlier uh, in the text. They're praying for vindication. We've been martyred. Vindicate the faith for which we died. They're praying for the suppression of the wicked. Let the wicked triumph no more. And they're praying that the glory and truth of God would be confirmed. People know that. Those are good prayers. Uh, now, it says here in the text that to those prayers were added the incense that the angel brought mixed with the prayers. What's that, that all about? That's about the grace of God. Have you ever prayed prayers that you thought, man, I, I didn't state that well. I couldn't articulate what I felt. Or sometimes say, man, I don't know if, if I prayed that the right way. I, I may have prayed more angrily than I should. I may have prayed more feebly than I should, Right? You've never experienced that? Come on. Yeah, you have. Well, what it says here is that the grace of God comes and takes our prayers and lifts them up, adds to them, is mixed with them, and they're just the way they should be. You know? He takes our prayers, our little feeble prayers, our wrong-headed prayers, our right-headed prayers, takes all those, and the grace of God and makes them just right. So the recipe is exactly as it should be. Now, that should give you some comfort. Gives me some comfort. You ever feel like, man, I don't, I'm not a very good prayer. My wife will tell you, I, I stumble when I pray. We pray together every morning. And uh, sometimes she says, John, it's time to shut up. <laughs> but, you know, but the Lord, the Lord does this. He adds that to that. Now, uh, so it's the prayers that precipitate the trumpets. So the angel, it says, takes up in the censer, fire from the altar and hurls it to the earth. Tumultuous things happen. Therefore, be persistent, be consistent, be patient in your prayers. God will take them with his own grace mixed in and throw things down to the earth. They'll have their effect. Now the trumpets at that point begin to blast. I thought you should hear what a trumpet fanfare might sound like. So can we hear a trumpet fanfare somewhere or another? Gets your attention, right? Something important is about to happen, right? The trumpets, they go out, they do this. Uh, the judgment of God begins. That's what the trumpets announced, just like they did at Jericho. 
Now, what are these trumpets? We read the four of them there. By the way, you'll see that the, the trumpets are just like the seals. That You have the first set of four, and then there's an interlude, and then there's five and six. And there's going to be the seventh that unfolds the bowls. So, same sort of pattern. But consider, if you would, uh, the third trumpet and the wormwood star. Have you ever read C.S. Lewis, uh, the screw tape letters? Isn't there a character in there called Wormwood? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, who's this wormwood star? What does that mean? And uh, I mean, this is just a good, a good way for us to get into the notion of how should we understand all of these things that happen? Uh, well, that's not the first time in the scripture that wormwood has been mentioned. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18, I think it is, uh, says this. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 29 is where you have... Uh, the blessings and the cursings of God. This is the cursings of God if the people don't do what it says. It says that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. So wormwood is always a bad thing. It's a poisonous fruit. So the start of the falls is called a poisonous thing. It's, it's a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's, it's, a, it's a fruit though. And then in, in uh, Jeremiah chapter Nine. The Lord speaking through Jeremiah says, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood, and give them poisoned water to drink. Well, a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers in the springs of water, and a third of the waters became wormwood. Man, that sounds a lot like that, doesn't it? Do, do you see the connection? So the, the imagery here, what, what God's saying, showing us, is something that he's used consistent. Now, there's another place in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, is it 23 or someplace like that? Where's the next one? 23, 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts uh, concerning the prophets, behold, I'm going to feed them wormwood. That's not made. It's make them drink poisonous water. Connect it again. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, pollution has gone forth into all the land. Again, you have this connection of there's a fruit that comes out of this, that there's the, a natural thing that should be there. It's called wormwood. It's poisonous. It's bad. And it poisons the water. Now, the water there means the teaching of God. It means the, 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 the things that will give you life. And, and uh, that because the prophets are speaking out darkness and not light, they're speaking death and not life. It's called wormwood. Uh, so wormwood is a foreboding picture of God's judgment. Now here in Revelation, the people of Israel are being judged. You know, the entire New Testament is about Jesus as Messiah. We all know that. And the response of people to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God the Messiah. How do you handle that? What do you believe? Will people receive him or not? <clears throat> God gave an entire 40-year period specifically for his people, the Jews, to make up their minds about Jesus. Would they receive him or would they not? 
entire 40 years from AD 30 till AD 70, make up their minds. God's always gracious like that. He doesn't, you don't just have to do it right away. He'll give you time. Think about it. Let the Spirit work. Temple worship during that time was okay. You weren't wrong if you did it, but it wasn't necessary. Temple worship was no longer necessary because Jesus took care of all that. He fulfilled all that, all right? We need to know that. A lot of people don't know that. They want the temple to be rebuilt and and God's people to offer sacrifice. That would be blasphemous. That would say, Jesus, you weren't sufficient. No, 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 Don't, don't go that way. So during that 40 years, temple worship was necessary, was not necessary, but it was okay. Now, now, at the end of this 40 years, it's going to be gone. It will not be a possibility. Since AD 70, it's not been possible for the Jews to offer the sacrifices they had done all through their history. Not possible because the temple's gone, Jerusalem was gone. The temple's still gone. So, again, keeping our balance, we're looking ahead a little bit, but Revelation 10 verse 7 says this. In the days of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, sound, the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. The mystery of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what people can't understand. He's the one who brings that all out. But, but the mystery is done. It's cut off. No more. You either get the mystery or you don't. At the end of this time, when the, the seventh angel sounds, he says. So that time is done. There's another place where, again, we have to keep our bearings here. So looking ahead a little bit more to Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, says this. Now, this is about the two witnesses, and that's going to be another whole thing to talk about. But their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. Now, which city is that? Which city is that? It's where their Lord was crucified. Which city is that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. All this helps me. I still got five minutes. Don't worry, I have 24 more slides. <laughs> it's going to be tough. <laughs> uh, all this suggests to me that if Jerusalem's gone, this can't be true. And if it's going to be very soon, it, it will not tear it all that. It, it has to be somewhere be, be, before then. So that's, that is part of why. I think it's compelling to understand an early date. Now, this text, Revelation, is a prophecy, not history. It will soon have a history, right? It will soon be part of the historical record, remember, 1 1 and 1 3. You know what liberals do with this? They do this with this like they do with, with other Old Testament prophecies, like Daniel. They say it was written at a later date, and they come back and they interpret events that happen from this later date. So it's really like a historical novel. <laughs> There's no prophecy involved. It's historical fiction or historical stuff. They say from, from, from 95 or from 200, from wherever they thought it was written, they go back and they interpret the stuff <clears throat> that happened in AD 70. Or they make well, it be way off into the future. Now, liberals don't do this. Conservatives do. Liberals can do it as well. And so that it has no relevance to the seven churches at all to whom it was written. Uh, now, we need to know about a guy named Josephus. So start putting up those bullet points about Josephus. 
Josephus was born in the year 37 into a priestly family in Jerusalem. Go ahead, next one. He was well-educated, including one of his teachers was Simon, the son of Gamaliel, the guy who Saul was educated under, Gamaliel. That was one of who Josephus was, was educated under. He was a Pharisee. He spent three years with the Essenes. That'd be the people down at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran and other places. He was there. He knew all the elite persons of Jerusalem and of Israel. <clears throat> at age 29, he was made governor general of Galilee as war with Rome was imminent. Then he was assigned to lead the Galilean resistance to Rome, but was eventually defeated, captured, held by Romans as their prisoner. And then he was present for the siege of Jerusalem and its eventual destruction. He was there, Josephus was. His is the only contemporary account we have for the siege and capture of Masada, for instance. If not for him, it'd be just another thing that happened we don't know about. He returned to Rome with Titus, who completed the destruction of Jerusalem, and he lived there in Rome until his death sometime around the year AD 100. His Antiquities of the Jews and the Wars of the Jews are our chief source of information next to the Bible for the history and antiquity of ancient Palestine, and they provide valuable insight <coughs> excuse me, into first century Judaism and the background of early Christianity. That's Josephus. Uh, we need to know more about him. Now, why don't we? Because we live in a sad time. <clears throat> We've forgotten. I'm putting myself there. Here's what uh, this woman scholar from France, Muriel Hottest Level, says, among the English Puritans, think John Owen, think Thomas Watson, uh, think Jonathan Edwards. Among the English Puritans, Josephus was the only reading, aside from the Holy Bible, authorized on the Lord's Day. In other words, they held him pretty high. He was a scripture, but he sure helped. Now, remember Yale University? It was found, it says, an edition of Josephus' works was among the 40 works contributed by the clergyman who founded the Collegiate School of Connecticut, which is now Yale University. They said, we want to have a, a solid foundation for learning here. We want to make sure Josephus' works are part of that. Go ahead with the next one. So integral is this writer to the history of Christianity that the relative obscurity into which Josephus has lapsed in our own century can be viewed as another clear sign of the de-Christianization of the West. So I'm going to help you get beyond that, all right? That's what we want to do. <clears throat> so what Josephus records, he records the judgment of God on Israel. And he understood that to be the case. He, he was there a priestly man. And he was, for all intents and purposes, as far as we knew, a, a pious guy. He wasn't a secularist. He was a pious guy. He re, so we don't know if he rejected, we assume he rejected Jesus. But he wrote out and he understood that this happened as a judgment from God. Um, and so, let's go through and see what, what he says. Uh, he says, a company of deceivers and robbers got together and persuaded the Jews to revolt. 
and exhorted them to assert their liberty till all Judea was filled with the effects of their madness, madness, and thus the flame was every day more and more blown up till it came to direct war. Now it's direct war with Rome. Rome ruled the world. It's like, what should I say? It's like Indiana waging war with the United States. He saw it. We can't believe that that's happened. He tells us that. He goes on in another place. He says, the men of power with the high priests, as also all the part of the multitude that were desirous of peace, took courage and seized upon the upper city, Mount Sion in Jerusalem. For the seditious part had the lower city and the temple in their power. So in Jerusalem itself, there's this big division of power. There are camps against one another fighting. Does that remind you of anything going on today in our land? More and more polarized, right? They were polarized. And uh, Jerusalem was, but the whole country around them was as well. And then there's a third group that comes in. It says the Sicarii. Uh, it says those were the names of robbers as had been under their, had under their bosoms, you know, swords. Uh, and they grew bolder. Uh, insomuch that the king's soldiers were overpowered by their multitudes and boldness. And so they gave way and were driven out of the upper city by force. But look what happened. They carried fire, the fire to the place where the archives were reposited, and made haste to burn the contracts belonging to their creditors, and thereby dissolved the obligations of pay, for paying their debts. In other words, they burned all the archives so everyone was free of debt. Should have been a Democrat. Should have been a politician. All politicians say that, don't they? They just set fire to the archives. There's no record of debts. They did all that to get people on their side. So now you have three parts <coughs> in Jerusalem. All the surrounding areas realize that Rome is against the Jews. And things begin to happen. Trumpets, you can hear, as it were. Listen to this. This is what happened in Caesarea. Many of you have been to Caesarea. Now the people of Caesarea had slain in one hour's time about 20,000 Jews. And all Caesarea was emptied of its Jewish inhabitants. That'd make front page headlines today. Uh, he goes on to say, Josephus does. It, now remember, he's living there. He, he's, during these times, he's not making it up. Says, it was then common to see cities filled with dead bodies, still lying unburied, and those of old men mixed with infants, all dead, and scattered about together, women also amongst them, without any covering for their nakedness. You may see the whole province full of inexpressible calamities, while in dread of still more barbarous practices. Boy, things are bad. Things are happening. Some of you who've been with us over to, to uh, Israel know that where Bet Shean is, it's called Scythopolis in, in those times, but here's what they did there. Uh, <clears throat> the people of Scythopolis, that is Bethshean, watched their opportunity and cut all their throats, some of them as they lay unguarded, and some as they sleep. The number of the slain was above 13,000. And then they plundered them of all they had. So 13,000, boom, killed Jews. There were other cities that did as well, not quite as to that degree. Besides this murder at Scythopolis, the other cities rose up against the Jews that were among them. Those of Ascalon slew 2,500, those of Ptolemus 2,000, and put not a few in bonds. Those of Tyre also put a great number to death, but kept a greater number in prison. <clears throat> now here's what happened down in Egypt at Alexandria. <clears throat> he sent out 
upon them, that is the Jewish populace of Alexandria, those two Roman legions that were in the city, and together with them 5,000 other soldiers, to the ruin of the Jews. They were permitted not only to kill them, but to plunder them of what they had, and to set fire to their houses. They were destroyed unmercifully, wherein no mercy was shown to the infants, and no regard had to the aged. But they went on in the slaughter of persons of every age, till all the place overflowed with blood, and 50,000 of them lay dead upon heaps." Isn't that horrible? You see why there's silence before these trumpets blow, before these things begin to happen. It's horrific what happens there. <clears throat> he talks about the city of Damascus. It says, the people of Damascus, when they were informed of the destruction of the Romans, that is, they, the Jews had attacked a Roman thing and had corp and had got rid of them, set about the slaughter of those Jews that were among them. So they came upon the Jews and cut their throats as being in a narrow place in number 10,000, and all of them unarmed, and this in one hour's time without anybody to disturb them. <clears throat> now Josephus, I mean, we wonder about the numbers, and this apparently is true. Josephus, he was governor general, he gathered together an army, to fight the Romans, he gathered together an army out of Galilee of more than 100,000 young men, all of whom he armed. So he has an army of 100,000. Well, <clears throat> The Samaritans, we read about the Samaritans in the Bible, says the Samaritans did not escape their share of misfortunes at this time. He, that is the commander of the fifth legion, assured them that they would lay down their arms. He would secure them from any harm. But when he could not prevail with them, he fell upon them and slew them all, being a number of 11,600. This was done on the 27th day of the month of Decius. Here's what happened. You hear thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands are happening. <clears throat> he goes on and says this, when the, the city were... Josephus eventually made his headquarters and held out the last city there to, before he surrendered to the Romans. It says, and of these, <clears throat> there were gathered together as captives 1,200. And as for those that were slain at the taking of the city and in the former fights, they were numbered to be 40,000. So Vespasian, who eventually becomes Caesar, so Vespasian gave order that the city should be entirely demolished and all the fortifications burnt down. And thus was Japata taken in the 13th year of the reign of Nero on the first day of the month, Panamus. <clears throat> now, what about... We have a couple of other things, and we're just about done. What time is it? Well, pretend I'm Denny Barger. And don't know what time this is supposed to end, all right? So just pretend. <clears throat> this talks about what happened at Joppa. It says, in the morning there fell a violent wind upon them. It is called by those that sail there the black north wind. And there dashed their ships one against another, and dashed some of them against the rocks. The waves rose so very high that they drowned them, nor was there any place whither they could fly, nor in any way save themselves. Some of them thought that to die by their own swords was lighter than by the sea. And so they killed themselves before they were drowned. Although the greatest part of them were carried by the waves and dashed to pieces against the abrupt parts of the rocks. They boom, crashed against the rocks, insomuch that the sea was bloody a long way. That sea, of course, is the Mediterranean Sea. And then we have the Sea of Galilee. Tiberius is the main place there. Here's Vespasian put together on shipboard as many of his forces he thought sufficient to be too hard for those that upon the lake that were upon the lake and set sail after them. Sometimes the Romans leaped into their ships with swords in their hands and slew them. One might then see the lake all bloody and full of dead bodies, for not one of them escaped. Oh, but listen, what's next? And a terrible stink. And a very sad sight there was on the following days over that country, for the shores were full of shipwrecks, 
and the dead bodies all swelled. And as the dead bodies were inflamed by the sun and putrefied, they corrupted the air. This was the upshot of the sea fight. So we've gone north to south, east to west, across all of Israel. Finally here in Tiberias, Vespasian's going to win the, the, Gattel, the whole Galilee area. It says, Then came Vespasian and ordered them all to stand in the stadium, and he commanded them to kill the old men, together with the others that were useless, who were in number 1,200. Out of the young men he chose 6,000 of the strongest and sent them to Nero to dig through the isthmus, that is, they be common laborers, workers, slaves, and sold the remainder for slaves, being 30,400, besides such as he made a present of to Agrippa. And that's the Agrippa we read about in, in scriptures. These prisoners were taken on the eighth day of the month of Gorpios. Wow. What can you say to that? Destruction, destruction all around. The trumpets of God sounding. All this would have been known to that area, you know, all around the Mediterranean. Here's what's happening in Israel. The seven churches would hear this. Say, oh, oh, we know. So what do we want to conclude from that? We we'll conclude several things. One, God is sovereign. Those trumpets were blown at the behest of God. God does, in fact, send judgment. That's the second point. Judgments do come. It's not all a free ride. Judgments come. They come to people. They come to communities. Judgments come to nations. Number three, prayer is essential. All this was initiated by the prayers of the saints. Praying for God's honor to be upheld, for his word to be vindicated, for the wicked to be put down. Those are the way we should pray. We don't want the wicked to triumph. We want to be saved, but if not, put them down. We want your honor, Lord, to be vindicated, for your word to be held up as true. Do you know what Christian preaching is called? I, you know why I like to be called a preacher? The word in Greek is kerux, which is the word for trumpet. Kerux, you trumpet abound. We should do that. What was Jesus' first words when he went out preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel always begins with that phrase, repent. You need a savior. Now, you don't have to say those words, but I'm just saying, the gospel begins with awareness that we need a savior, that we're under the judgment of God. If nothing happens, we're, we're a bad shape. God comes and works in our lives that way. That's still a relevant message. It's one we need to receive, one we need to repeat, because the judgment of God, and all these judgments point forward to that great day when Christ returns, and there will be a judgment for everyone who's ever lived. No escaping. And then we'll give thanks for our great Savior who plucked us up out of the miry clay, who set our feet upon a rock, made our footsteps sure and firm. So trumpet fanfares are great. They remind us that they're, 
excuse me, the trumpets go at the behest of God. A joy to some, because they'll be vindicated. A woe to others. Amen. 